Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you come through a period where you didn't have to think about other identities other than yourself, to accommodate for other people, that really makes people mad for some reason. That was Benjamin Law, and this is episode 204 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 204 of the show. This episode today is with Benjamin Law. You can find out more about him in a moment when I tell you about him or you can follow him on Twitter right now. He's Mr. Benjamin Law. So that's at Mr. Mr. Benjamin Law. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to everybody that got in touch through the week. You can write me an email anytime you like. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where I am. Uh, thanks for all the podsies, which is a photograph of what you're looking at while you listen to this. It could be of the dishes that you're doing, of the laundry that you're washing, of the walk that you're walking. Uh, I just got an email 46 minutes ago from uh, a woman named Hillary who I can just see her footprints and nobody else's in a perfect kind of slightly stormy beach. Um, I believe it's the Bass Strait in the southern part of Australia looking south towards Tasmania. Glorious. Absolutely glorious. She's really uh, soaking in the Eastkey Britain podcast and uh, soaking in that energy, that ocean energy and recharging. What a magnificent photograph. Thank you so much for sending that through, Hillary. Um, I hope you're uh, doing okay. If you do want to send me an email, you can always find me, send us your email at gmail.com. Um, I'm doing all right this week. Um, I won't rattle on too much. I'm, I'm very grateful this week. Um, I re- received some some health news, which, which wasn't awesome. I might, I'll, I'll share it with you maybe another time, but... Um, I'm grateful for what I, what I do have in my life, I, I guess. Uh, I've been reading the new Ryan Holiday book about stoicism and uh, there's, there's a lot to say in there about um, how you look at the world. 
there's what you can control and there's things outside of your control that you can yell and scream and bitch and moan and t- flip tables, but they still won't change. So the way to find peace is to alter the way you look at the planet and look at the world and look at what's happening because um, that you can control. And um, that's really been helping me through this week, I've got to say, uh, really helping me this week. He has a, um, a basically a rule of threes that uh, he's used. The, uh, what's the name of the book? I think it's Meditations on Stoicism. I think it is. It's like a one each one for a day of the week. Uh, it's a book by Ryan Holiday, uh, who's one of my favourite authors. And Ryan's rule of three is control your perceptions, direct your actions properly, willingly accept what's outside your control. And I guess where that hits for me this week is, um, uh, remember a couple of weeks ago I told you that I want to start running again? Um, well, I... I tried to get back into it. I've been diagnosed a few years back with an impingement in both of my hips, which is a bit of bone that grows and stops your hips from moving in the way that they should move and can bash into your uh, labrums, which are the shock absorbers that are inside the hip joints. So that's all damaged my body. And um, I was told, you know, you'll never run a marathon again. You might run a 10K, but that's about it. Um, But things were going all right. So I started running a a small amount, like a K, then a K and a half, then two Ks. I was going really, really slowly. Um, then I got, got myself up to being able to run 10 Ks and I ran two 10 Ks in the space of two weeks. Um, and my hip, the ache in my hip just wouldn't, wouldn't go away. wouldn't get any better. So I thought, oh, bloody hell, better go get an MRI. So I went and lay on the weird table and it kind of, you go into this tube and there's a very noisy tube and you're in there for about half an hour or two, an hour actually, because I had to do both hips. Um, and I went and saw the surgeon and he used, you know, his, his best grave surgeon voice. And he said, yeah. You're, uh, you, your condition's actually gotten worse. You're pre-arthritic and, uh, you know, you won't be running any marathons. In fact, you won't be running at all ever again. Um, and, you know, in about 10 years, you'll have to come back and see me and I'll have to replace your hip. Um, so that was really hard to hear, you know, because running has been such a massive part of who I am in the past. There was a point where uh, while using running to, to keep my head square, um, when I was going through some shit in my life, I was at a point where I could, you know, run a half marathon at the drop of a hat. You know, I remember like one Friday being in New York and someone said, running a half marathon tomorrow. I was like, okay. And I did it and and had no problems. Um, but I guess, you know, you get old, your body changes. Um, and so, yeah, it really hit me hard. I was, I was really glum. I was really sad about that. I was really pissed off, to be honest, that, you know, I really, really wouldn't be able to run at all, not even not even a 10K um, again. Um, so, um, you know, my dream of, of teaming up with Rich Roll on his, on his Otolo adventure when I turn 50 is out the window. Sorry, Rich, you're going to be on your own for that one. Um, but, you know, to come back to that book from Ryan, you know, control, control my perceptions. What, what's my perception? My perception is, you know, I can perceive that this is a terrible thing or I can perceive this is a great thing. Well, I can still ride, I can still swim, I can still walk, I can still do yoga. You know, there's plenty of things that I can do. I direct my actions properly, okay, so I can not run, I can look after myself, I can make sure that I keep my nutrition and, you know, my flexibility up as high as possible to mitigate the, you know, the possible onset of any kind of arthritis in my hips um, and willingly accept what's out my, outside my control. Yeah, it's outside my control. I've really got nothing to do with it. 
this shit just happens to some people. It's in fact, I was, I think I was born with it and that's just, you know, what's happened. So I'm going to try that this week. That's what I'm going to try at least. And I'll tell you how I go next week. But, um, to tell you about my guest today, I couldn't be happier that this fine young man joined me in my, uh, apartment after he had about a good 10 to 15 minute cuddle session with Frankie. I think the two of them just went for it. It was great watching them just play on the ground together. They had a blast. Benjamin Law is an Australian journalist, author, screenwriter, activist, and speaker. Benjamin shocked to fame when the semi-autobiographical TV series based on his best-selling book, The Family Law, became a massive, massive hit. Ben's recently written the latest quarterly essay, um, which is an essay that comes out quarterly. It addresses the safe schools education debate uh, here in Australia, and um, he's an active campaigner for equality, marriage equality, here in Australia. Benjamin's a wonderfully smart and charming man who brings a he brings a kind grace to the topic of, I guess, the demographically changing face of Australia. When he does speak, people can be very reactionary because the facts that he speaks from can be uncomfortable to hear if you've never been challenged in your ways of thinking. Many people have a foregone, well, people can have a foregone conclusion as to the kind of man that Benjamin Law is, but I'd invite them to look beyond the, the bile-filled op-ed articles of the conservative press and, and listen instead to the kind of man that Ben is. The thing that impressed me the absolute most about Ben is that at his core, he's a journalist. And unless there's a fact there, he's not going to make a claim. He's not going to make some giant, bold statement. He operates in facts. Sure, he's passionate about what he believes in, but he only operates in facts. And it was a really beautiful thing to have this conversation with him. We go deep. We go long, we sometimes go around in circles, but it's a cracking chat uh, and there's a nice cup of tea involved. And if you do like this conversation, you can find him on Twitter and follow along. He's a very vocal guy. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. You can also let him know that you enjoy the show. Find him at Mr. Benjamin Law, MR Benjamin Law. So enjoy a, a post-cavoodle cuddled Benjamin Law sitting at my kitchen table. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm really, really well. Thanks Thank for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful day. Yeah, that makes me happy. And it is a beautiful day, so I've actually brought my dick togs. Afterwards, I might actually go for a swim. So you've betrayed already that you're from Queensland because you know, used the word dick, dick togs. togs. Because what, everyone else will, would say, what, budgie smugglers? Budgie smugglers. Um, yeah. What else is there? Dick stickers? Dick stickers. Toolies was another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, but, I, but I'm Queenslander. DTs. DTs. Yeah, <laughs> which part of Queensland? It was Nambour, wasn't it? Well, yeah, so I was born in Nambour Hospital, um, same place where Wayne Swan and Kevin Rudd were from, <laughs> but then... Uh, but then uh, you get born in Nambour. It doesn't mean you have to stay there. So, But we grew up around the Sunshine Coast. Can't you tell? I'm just like such a surfer. Which part of the Sunshine Coast? <laughs> um, Kiwana, which oh, is yeah. kind of halfway between Caloundra, uh-huh. Malulaba, Marichidor, yeah. that kind of area. We lived a- across the road from the main shops. It was very suburban existence. We were very scared of the water. Don't know why my parents settled there. <laughs> so, like, okay, so it's, it's uh, like an anti-Gold Coast 
uh, well, it, it, in many ways. Look, it's got the kind of beautiful, sweeping blue and gold geography on the, of the Gold Coast. It also has theme parks, but they're shitter. Um, and it has the kind of um, – it doesn't have the big buildings of the Gold mm. Coast. It's it's the the happy poor cousin of the of Are the you Gold saying Coast. Forest Glen Deer Sanctuary isn't? <laughs> oh my God. You know, how do you know Forest Glen Deer? Like <laughs> <laughs> you saying Forest Green Deer Sanctuary isn't one of the greater theme parks? Um, it's on the old Bruce well, Highway, so it doesn't exist I don't anymore. Know, I don't. I don't know if you've if you've driven past that area, but when you see what what used to be Forest Green Deer Sanctuary, you're just like, so it's closed. What happened to all the deer? You yeah, know, were they turned into venison or something like Maybe. that? Maybe. So you, did you go to all of those bad theme parks like oh, as a getaway from yeah, Brisbane? We, so we grew up in Brisbane, and after my parents got divorced, family holidays were mm. with dad. Oh. Was, yeah, we got three weeks. Here's a whole other conversation we can relate yeah. to each other about because after my parents divorced, we had like weekends where yeah. weird theme parks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we would often stay at this place in Mercula, right across the road from mm-hmm. the airport, and we would take trips down the down the Bruce Highway, uh, the old Bruce Highway, not the new. Oh one. yes, not the one that looks like a bloody airstrip. No, that's a, very very two true. lanes, frightening back then, and um. And yeah, so um, I think Dino World, Dino World was another one we went to. Oh, what was Dino World? Dino World was, was that, a, a was that Dino- on the Sunshine Coast? Yeah, yeah. Or was it nostalgia town that had a that had a fiberglass brontosaurus there? Yeah, yeah. something like that. Um, it was a, a, it was a pretty racist place if you if that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, had like um, dinosaurs next to Aborigines. Excellent. Which is just like yeah, I'm not really sure that's the time. No, though. I don't think that works. Uh, <laughs> and of course, then we also went, we went to both big pineapples, the small one and the big one. <gasps> oh yeah, yeah. Wow, you look back at them and you're like, they were pretty weird theme parks. And now, is that, is that small big pineapple still at the Caltex in Nambour? I think it, it might it might be, and the and the big big pineapple is like a I don't know a, a place for old vintage cars or something like that. It's had a few is weird it over? car. Yeah, the big pineapple is done, <sighs> and there was this sad period there where you drive past it and you just hear the bleating of lambs in the petting zoo. And it's like where where are they and are they okay? And the whole the whole kind of biodome of one of the rides was just ripped off. <sighs> Like pterodactyls had flown out of it or something <laughs> like that. Boy, because you know, once that new freeway went through, yeah, that, that was it. Mm. Who wants to drive past there anymore? No, no. There was my, my dad, who's a lovely man and a, always a visionary entrepreneur. Really wanted to buy the big pineapple and um, turn it into something like um, like apartments or something. There's there's still an opportunity there. I'm not sure if the real estate's available at the moment. Pineapple but. apartments. I say put it on the back of a boat and bring it down here. Oh, that's great. You know. Or take it to the Gold Coast in time for the Commonwealth Games. Perfect. <laughs> Opening ceremony. <laughs> Just it the giant pineapple. Absolutely. Be there. What were your folks into? What were they doing? They were – well, my dad was a restaurateur. He still is a restaurateur in some ways. And he had this place um, on Malulaba Esplanade right near the beach, Thai restaurant because we're Chinese, but, you know, a lot of people can't tell the difference. <laughs> and so we exploited that. Uh, and it was like really – when I worked there on holidays, we had Tony Collette come in. We had Quine Yeomans from Regurgitator come in. I'm like, oh, my God, we get all the famous people at our wow. place. And it was just a pretty happy Did, did you have place. a play on the word Thai in your title? Yeah, the, the original incarnation of the restaurant was um, Thai Breakers. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it. No, well, then it became Thai seasoned and then it just kind of shut down. Yeah. So, um, and my mum, her full-time job for which she never got proper pay, was raising five kids full-time, you yeah. know, like a lot of single moms. It's like, 
unpaid labor and yeah. a lot of it. How old were you when your folks split? 12. What about you? Oh, I was 11. Oh, my God. We're like, we're the same person. <laughs> I'm number two, though. What number are you? I'm number three of five. Right. Um, I wonder, yeah, we were leading very parallel lives. I'm two of four. I'm older than you. Like, I got at least 15 years. I'm 43. Well, I'm 30. I'm 35. So it's not that, it's not that big a difference. You fucking genetics, motherfucker. Yeah, but if you could, if you could see what Osha looks like right now, it's like his moisturizing regimen. No, I'm not. It's it's very, very good. I worked nights for most of my 20s. So I stayed out of the sun. sun. Stayed out of the sun for a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like my, my wife is, she's, um, um, my wife's Fijian, mm. and uh, some and her mum, her dad is Indian Samoan, and her mum is Chinese Fijian. Oh wow! So she's got all of the no aging genes going on. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. She's she's set. Yeah, she'll come. You'll, you'll meet her, Audrey. She'll, she's on the she's on the way back. She had a meeting earlier on, so she. Uh, yeah. So be, be, besides that, what was besides it like? our beautiful the beautiful skin elasticity? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She, she calls herself Eubrasian. Oh, that's great. That's uh, great. She's got yeah. the best of all worlds there. It, it's quite the Pacific, South Pacific melange going on. Well, it's like if you've got melanin, that's not going to crack. And if you've got a bit of Asian, you're just not going to die. <laughs> as long as you do your weird little walks every day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. With your UV visor, like a lot of mainland Chinese women wear. Like, the, like... Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the welding helmet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I used to live at Bondi... Um, uh, in the idle days, I would go down for a run in the mornings mm. and you'd see the the Taiwanese uh, ladies getting off the bus or the Korean ladies getting off the bus and they would legit have like this full-on like barrier, almost like a sun deck. Yeah, absolutely. Between them and the world. It's funny when you say like it looks like a welding mask because it probably has the same amount of protection <laughs> as well what they're using. You know, it's funny you mention your idle days because, you know, there's like a whole subset of people and I think it's a generational thing on Twitter who don't realise that you are the same person. Oh, that's brilliant. Have you come across that yeah, yet where people occasion. are really, really stunned to discover mm. that Osh is that dude well, and I'm, their minds break? I've gone a long way to, you know, change, you know, yeah. you know I'm, I'm witness relocation. Yeah. I'm <laughs> witness protection program. I'm not blonde anymore. Yeah. I call myself a different name. <laughs> I'd like to think I behave differently. Absolutely. Um, which is which is yeah, very, very different. I mean, I'm... The guy back then would probably get a lot. Uh, I mean, I still get a bit reactionary, and it. it's it's difficult. And um, you know, it's something actually I want to talk to you about. Mm. Is that I've seen you handle yourself in current times. You found yourself pop up as the uh, hmm. as the talking head to represent. Uh, well, you carry a lot of minorities in one. In yeah, one yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a lasagna. <laughs> it's just like layer layer those minorities inside me. I contain multitudes. Um, and you know, you've been you've been, you get challenged on camera. Quite yep. a bit, and I'm always marvelled at your ability to keep your shit oh, together. Oh, thanks, Sasha. Because I I get myself I don't in feel I don't feel like that inside though. I'm right. just kind of like this uh, front loading washing machine of am I gonna am I gonna fuck this up? Am I gonna fuck this up? Yeah. Um, but but I think also after a while, for instance, I just wrote this quarterly essay about the Safe Schools program, and I knew from the start because I'm going to have to cover the Australian in quite depth. In investigating something like the newspaper. that, the Australian newspaper who who wrote ninety thousand words on safe schools. If I'm criticising that paper, they're going to go after me because that's exactly what I'm researching. How they go after people. So, 
you kind of um, prepare yourself for it. And because I'm friends with people like Yasmin Abdel-Majid and Tim Sapomazan, you know, head of the Australian uh, Race, Discrimin- uh, Race Discrimination Commission, um, you've seen how people have gone them. So you've kind of got a, a game plan. You know it's going to happen. So you brace yourself for it. And I guess one of my mottos that I've been carrying around lately <laughs> is when one of my friends got pregnant recently um, – and it was just, it was the start of all my friends, you know, popping out kids. And she said, and I said to her, I, you know, are you nervous? It's going to be a big change in your life. How are you feeling about all of this? And she just laughed and she said, whatever happens, it's going to be hilarious. And I just thought, my God, that is such an amazing attitude to have in the face of one of the biggest changes you'll experience in your life. And I just thought, actually, there is probably going to be some humor even in the darker situations. As long as you find it, you'll be fine. But, I mean, what I experience is a, a thumbnail, a thimble of, of what you experience. Uh, oh, but I've seen, like, tabloids go pretty hard <laughs> at you. Like, and they're really, they're really personal, right? Well, that's their thing, isn't it? And you would have seen that, mm. you know, dealing with the Australian. It's, well, let, let's, 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 let's come back to that thing about that. But firstly, you know, um, when, you, when you do see someone like the Australian newspaper... Mm. Um, have you noticed a particular MO that they take when it comes to attacking something mm. like Safe School? Something that is a little different, is a bit progressive, yeah. um, probably, you know, might be seen as centre-lefty, mm. um, humanist, yeah. uh, kind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one caveat is... I actually still, just by myself, still subscribe to the Australian magazine because I, I don't think that they're a villainous entity in and of itself. And I feel like, you know, I've got friends who write for the Australian. I know there are really good journalists there. I look at people like, um, you know, Trent Dalton, who writes for the Weekend Australian magazine, who writes these beautiful, humane pieces. Pamela Williams, who's like an award-winning journalist. I'm like, this, this newspaper, this institution still delivers great hits. What's kind of gone weird or a bit haywire about them maybe in the last decade maybe last decade and a half is that they really go after people and they go after people in a really personal way they are basically encouraging their readers to go on the attack Mm. they're mobilizing people and they run an agenda with certain things and those agendas become campaigns Um, and that's really transparent for instance in the case of Gillian Triggs or Yasmin Abdel-Majid when you write such a volume of work on one person or an institution like Safe Schools and you only really tackle it from one angle and you ignore a huge swathe of information or other voices, that ceases to become journalism. That's, um, you know, for all, of their, for all of their gripes about activists, that becomes activism. That's not, that's not journalism anymore. Um, and in the case of safe schools, what you see is they pick something, they not only write a news story on it on day one, but within the first you know, one or two or three days, they've got an editorial condemning it, which is like, well, you haven't actually taken into account all the different voices yet. This, is sto- this was a story, for those of you who aren't familiar with Safe Schools, this was a story that was about, um, you know, young people and sexuality in the schoolyard. 
And I think it's really telling that over 90,000 words over one year, the Australian didn't talk to one young person at all. It's like, I think you've forgotten why safe schools existed in the first place. And sure, there might actually have been room to criticise the program, but now you've just gone and said that it's the devil, basically, mm. and that doesn't really create a, a space for people to have a proper, normal, sane conversation. And this is what, and particularly with the marriage equality debate that we mm. are being dragged through, right now like a dog behind the Griswold's yeah. fucking camper van. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an expensive exercise in dragging uh, the, that dog's Griswold's uh, behind the camper van. Dear God. Um, we're, we're seeing that, you know, it, it's just how, how, how much fear can we instill in people? Mm. How frightened can we make people feel? And, yeah. then, and then how justified can we make them, how safe can we make them feel by three days later going, you're justified in feeling afraid. Absolutely. And I think... I think people aren't faking their fear either. I think people are genuinely worried about things like, um, you know, queer kids, um, the, the idea that teenagers might have any consciousness or cognizance of their sexuality or their gender, the idea that young people might be transgender, that's not something that they had to deal with when they were young because what was happening instead was that people who were trans were leading very covert lives or were perhaps suicidal as well because there was no discussion, no room for debate, and if they were expressing their, their, their gender, they were, they were labelled freaks. You know, like... When you when you come through a period where you you didn't have to think about other identities other than yourself to accommodate for other people that really that really makes people mad for some reason. Whereas I think there's there's room, um, you know, make space for other people who aren't like you and build a bit of empathy. To but to do that requires yourself to be vulnerable, and people don't like feeling vulnerable fundamentally. I think that's where a lot of the hostility comes from. So how do we break that down? How do we? I mean, I'm sure your DMs are the same as my DMs. I'm sure <laughs> there's that many people who. I mean, even. Five minutes before you walk through the door, there's someone on my Twitter DM yeah. telling me that, um, you know, uh, I'm voting no and it's it's actually saving them all from the rapture. Wow. Uh, you know, if there's if there's one thing that has pushed Legitimate me sense. further towards atheism than anything else, it's been the last four, four or five weeks yeah. of this fucking ridiculous mm. um, marriage equality plebiscite. Um, how, yeah, well, how do we have those conversations in good faith? I think that's a really that's a really good question and I'm not sure if I have any answers because when the whole debate, you know, like we're talking about a debate over same-sex marriage, yeah. well, the debate's kind of over in so many ways because, like, when you've got a decade of the majority of the Australian public saying they support same-sex marriage, the debate is over. What you've given us as a government is, um, you know, you've sucked $122 million to create the impression that there is a strong debate and that these people, this minority of religious fundamentalists and zealots, represent half the population, when that's just not true. And they're being resourced and equipped and given permission to say the most outrageous lies and hurtful things. I was, I was at this event the other day where I spoke with, you know, a mother of a transgender child and a transgender adult and they just even talking about their experiences broke down when they started talking. And I think a lot of that came from, from sheer exhaustion. Um, to have your life picked apart in a very public way by, by everyone else, 
um, when you are seen as an abstract thing to wrestle over and not as a human being, that is that is really really exhausting. And I feel like you know, uh, even though I'm gay myself, I do have a privilege in that you know most same sex attracted people they're kind of accepted by society nowadays. That's what this whole thing's about. But if you're trans, if you're intersex, um, if you're gender non-binary as well, those you know the it's no secret that within the LGBTIQ community, equality comes to us at different rates as well. And um, you know what we've got is this situation where we've been given license to hurt each other, mm. uh, and then when we say that we're hurt be accused of being really fragile, which I think is really awful because I think fragility and vulnerability is really important to have a same mm. conversation. So I would, I would like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure this is going to happen, but if we could reframe the conversation and say, you know, certainty, um, strength, uh, just rampant masculinity, they're not necessarily virtues, you know, doubt, vulnerability and keeping an open mind, that's kind of... That's kind of great as well, but we don't really teach young people that. How do you how do you open a conversation with uh, someone who's? I mean, I'm sure you have. How mm. do you open a conversation with someone who's like straight up like, no, I'm voting no because Safe Schools is going to come into my house. <laughs> well, you know, look, I'm an inner city wanker with an arts degree, Osha. So, so <laughs> those those conversations aren't usually happening face to face, but they do happen online. Yeah, um, and I've got. I don't know about you in terms of like if you have rules of like rules of engagement with with people online, but for me, if they're openly hostile and they're using like race, racial or homophobic epithets right from the start, then I'm just going to either block or mute them because they're not have they're, they're not interested in having a conversation in good faith. If they say, "Look, I want to vote no," and these are the reasons, well, they haven't abused me. They're trying to engage in conversation. So often, I ask them, "Well, why?" You know, and do you really believe that? And a lot of the a lot of the cases for no, if you take them to their logical extension, um, go into really dark places. I mean, even even with the safe schools thing, for instance, why don't you want why don't you want any discussions of LGBTIQ issues happening in classrooms? Not that that, by the way, that's not actually even what safe schools is. But if you don't want that happening, why not? And it's this whole idea that children shouldn't be exposed to it, and it's like, well. I was a teenager who probably needed to be exposed to it because I didn't have any vocabulary for it, which made me hate myself. So what about those teenagers? And then when you start teasing that out, when you real when they start realizing that, oh, you know, children aren't straight and then suddenly become gay at the age of 18, mm. young trans people might actually be questioning um, their gender or know their gender from a much younger age. These are new concepts to people, to mm. a lot of people. So... Um, just introducing a new suite of facts might actually help. But then, you know, some conversations you can't win and your role in life isn't to necessarily make them see the light. Yeah. This is the thing that sometimes <laughs> I struggle with letting go of. Yeah. Then this is the, you know, it, it were can. You, were you a high school debater, Osher? No, There's I a... wasn't and I regret it immensely Why? Why? You, you wanted to be. No, I was just, no, I was... Oh, I didn't. I didn't know how. I, I didn't think I was smart enough. All, all kinds of stuff. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And as a result, I never really learned some of the you know really more fundamental facts of of actually having debate, which is something that I crave at the moment. Mm. Particularly like in uh, having lived in America for ten years, having seen that there is no debate. Mm. It's simply you're wearing a blue tie, so therefore everything you say I will disbelieve and in fact work to reverse. Yeah. It might be a great idea for the people of your constituency, but. Mm. 
doesn't matter. If you're a Democrat, I don't care. Yeah, completely. Sometimes I, I, I think that you have to stand back and ask yourself, is it worth my time as well? Like if, if there's a troll who has 14 followers, mm. no one's actually seeing that person commenting at you anyway, So unless you engage with them. Um, if it's someone who does have a huge sway and you know they're a reasonable person, then, then I'm more willing to have a conversation because then that voice can be amplified. Mm. But if it's someone acting in bad faith who's simply trolling with very few followers, I'm like, oh, well, it, make, it makes me feel yuck, but I can easily dismiss that person because it's not going to get me anywhere and it's actually going to waste my time now as well. So, um, yeah. I guess it's about choosing your battles. So with someone as powerful as the Australian, as powerful as Sky News shit, even current affair, mm. you know, just being out there creating this kind of otherism, for want of a better word, mm. um, how do we bring debate back when these are the things that are getting uh, ticket sales, album, not album sales, ticket sales, yeah, you yeah, know, like readers and eyeballs readers, and so all that eyeballs, sort of stuff. Eyeballs, ratings, clicks. Yeah. How do we bring debate into our society again? Well, it's funny because in some ways um, – you could step back and also argue that Sky News doesn't have strong numbers um, and that the Australian's readership, like most newspapers, is struggling at the moment. But what, but what you are right about is that those institutions do hold sway. And one of the theses, when the theses that I bring up in the quarterly essay that I write isn't that there are a lot of people necessarily engaged with these topics because they've, they've read about them straight away. It's that powerful people um, watch Sky News and that powerful people read The Australian. So even you might not have a strong readership, but if you have a strong readership in Canberra that respects what you're writing about, they can suddenly start um, dismantling a program themselves. You know, you don't have to do that much work. But I think at the same time... Um, what we've seen in the last decade, this is my optimistic vibe, right? Mm -hmm. What we've seen like in the last decade in Australia is this great kind of um, fragmentation of the media. And I don't think that the Australian Sky News, these legacy kind of um, platforms have a monopoly in the Australian conversation anymore. Yeah, you know, the Daily Telegraph, the Courier Mail, the News Limited tabloids, the Herald Sun, they do have a really strong readership. But once upon a time, if they declared someone to be their choice of premier, that person would usually win. That's not the case anymore. And I think that's because... Um, you know, with the rise of social media, with a lot more independent journalistic outlets as well. Even something like the project becoming popular is is a viable alternative mm. in that space of conversation too. Um, so, so, so as time goes on, you see those institutions in decline, the old school institutions in decline, um, and their influence, although it is strong and troubling, I just don't see them being like they, they will only stay as they are or go down. And the other thing about the Australian is, and this is really fastidious in terms of, um, in terms of like media ownership and who owns what, but it is a pet project of Rupert Murdoch as well. He is old and he will die. And after that happens, I'm just not sure how much affection that his sons and daughters have towards that newspaper and keeping it afloat. And so I'm really interested in what happens after that said, that said, I did say that Rupert Murdoch's old, but his, his mum lived for a really long time. So she he did. might actually be, a, he's got those genetics. He will, he'll probably be cryo frozen and speak yeah, to, 
They're possibly the best <laughs> doctor's money can buy. Absolutely. He, yeah. will, he will speak to News Corp through a hologram somehow. Yeah. He, he will be downloaded into a system. He'll be the first one. Do you find it, I mean, in the face of you, you, you write about, obviously you write about some very sensitive topics and I've seen you online, you know, speaking about some very difficult things. Do you find it hard to be optimistic? Ah. Uh... Sometimes, I mean, there are some days where you just see the worst of people online, and especially if you've got a social, me- like a decent social media following, like you do. A lot of it feels the the horror feels funneled into you because it's directed at you as well. Um, but this look, this sounds really, really cheesy. But by the end of researching, like safe schools, for instance, I, I was pretty down about the state of the media and the state of federal politics as well, because safe schools was a program that was launched by the conservatives, and now they were tearing apart something that they had started, criticising something that they had launched as if it was someone else's responsibility. It was bizarre. But what what made me feel really optimistic afterwards is hanging out with young people, um, people who were at at school age who were going to like a same-sex formal or were accessing LGBTIQ um, resources and stuff like that because I wanted to know what was at stake for them. And they were just so, I, I sound so old saying this, the young people, they're so lovely, but they were so engaged, so smart, so forward-looking um, and so open-minded as well. And there's there's no there's no coincidence that, the more that you have young people engaged in voting, the more progressive your politics usually are, which is why conservatives usually aren't exactly thrilled about young people registering to vote. Um, one of the one of the great things about the same-sex marriage, I mean, probably the only great thing about the same-sex marriage postal survey, is the sheer numbers of young people who enrolled, and they they give me hope. Like they get it, they know that they'll be the generation most affected by all these all these things that federal politics have seemingly given up on, like climate change and stuff like that. Um, Pauline Hanson is someone who will say young people shouldn't vote till they're 21 because they're not engaged in politics. And it's like, no, that's not the problem. The problem is that old people aren't engaged with the politics that young people actually care about. But you hang out with them and you're like, oh my God, you guys are way ahead of where I was when I was 17. That gives me hope. So you mentioned climate change, and I know it's something that does mm. play on your mind. How do you stay positive? How do you stay optimistic in the face of... About the fact that we're about to inherit a barren dust bowl? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it is really hard. There was a... You know, I think for a lot of us, um, climate change feels like an abstract issue to the point where it becomes within the realm of deniability, where it's like, oh, look, the weather's the weather seems extreme today, but... We're still alive and all of these visions of the apocalypse aren't happening. But now to personalise it, if you have a kid in 2017, by the time that kid has their 21st birthday party and they live in a capital city in Australia, their summers will be 50 degrees Celsius. Like that is, like when you think about that, that is a point of utter despair. And that's actually if we sign off on the Paris protocols and, and hit our targets, which Australia isn't. I don't know where we are with that, but America is definitely not on board. So I just think, man, that is really depressing. The fact that both state and federal governments, you know, within the state of Queensland, which is about to, with with the Adani coal mine, is right behind the Adani coal mine, and that's Labor and the coalition governments. That that just, 
appalls me. So that is, I think that's a legitimate point of despair. And sometimes I think maybe more people should despair over stuff like that because maybe that would send a message to to federal politicians about what we care about. But they're not exactly a representative bunch anyway. They're, they're a lot more, you know, when, when a third of the population isn't white, you look at the federal politicians and it's like, well, that's not representative. When over half of the population are women and you look at federal politicians, it's like, well, that's not represented. When, when we're not that old <laughs> and you look, at, you look at parliamentarians and you're like, geez, no wonder. There's something kind of a bit broken and a bit behind when it comes to how we instill our democracy. Yeah, install our democracy. And this is my wife, Audrey. Hi. Hi, honey. Welcome to the podcast. Come on in. Welcome to the podcast, babe. The dog hasn't started humping um, things yet. Frankie hasn't humped anything yet. No. I'll give it time. Uh, (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Audrey's been down. Hey, Audrey, how are you going? This is Benjamin. No, not at all. Really lovely to meet you. you What did you... You came back with something from Miranda? Only one pot. Power. Oh, you went to flower power. Oh, what you get? You, is this like a pot plant or something, or no, what did you get? Put my pots in. Oh, okay. <laughs> see, Hello, see how in the corner of our kitchen here we have. A, oh, yes. We have, it's just plastic. Oh yeah. So we're looking. But you've got it in a beautiful yeah. snow goose box. Yeah. 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 We're so fashion. Reduce, yeah, yeah, yeah. reuse, recycle, Ben. Absolutely. <laughs> Look, those boxes, if you drill holes in the bottom, they're pretty good for, like, seedlings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Well, when it's finished doing that. <laughs> no. They might, they might go to a gift box, so, you know. Oh, okay. This, this podcast isn't sponsored, by the way. I don't know if that's going to no, make it to air. Well, it is, actually. <laughs> at the moment. Not by Snow Goose. No, Dollar Shave Club at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they disposable razors that come through the mail. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. They're really good. Oh, they're excellent. <laughs> <laughs> They're really good. Just for the face as well, Osha. Uh, look, <laughs> I know my wife's listening, but no, I have some water, honey. Hey, look, look what I'm using. Look at this. It's a it's a beautiful jug slash. I'm using the jug. It's more the the 400 Cali Press Juice Cleanse bottle <gasps> over here. Yeah, oh. we we did three days each the other day. Wow, and how how are your guts? I get they no get, longer exist. No, I get way more full than I did. A week ago. Oh, like your stomach has shrunk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Clearly I just eat for uh, comfort. Yeah, which yeah. you're allowed to and is legitimate, by the way. The other day we were, no, having no, an no, argument. Food we were having an argument in the kitchen the other day and I just had a piece of toast and we kept arguing and I grabbed the bread back out and I started it and she goes, are you hungry or are you just stressed? I'm like, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but it was right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I find deep comfort in food myself. So. Back on course. Sorry. Love you, honey. Really Thank nice you. to nice meet, meet you. you. See, you See you on the way out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool, man. We'll just be here. All right. I'm going to sequester myself. All right. Are you taking Frankington with you? Okay. <laughs> so I'm so easily distracted whenever I see books, but I'm just seeing like we have a lot of overlap in oh, really? what we in what we've read. So well, obviously most of those are Audrey's game, game the Game of Thrones series, which I feel he kind of lost the plot in book four and five. Yeah, especially the last one, Pig City. That's written by a mate of mine, Shut Andrew up, Stafford. You know yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great book. He was like my old university lecturer. I got the first signed copy he ever he ever release wow yeah but he's a mate of mine he's he's a really lovely guy and gert by david hunt he's a he's a fa- he's a friend of mine as well he yeah. sat in that very chair i know he did um, but we were talking about optimism optimism and we yes. were talking about 
how it, you know, how, how, how do you, say, for example, you, you wake mm. up in the morning and you open up your phone, hopefully yes. less than 18, 18 seconds after you open your eyes, <laughs> how, how do you deal when you scroll through your feed and you just see doom? Well, to be honest, the doom gets to you more because if, if, if in your timeline someone calls you an F and C out of the blue, it's just like it's like a stranger spat in your face. You know it's their problem and you know logically it's not your fault, but that doesn't really take away from the fact that you've got their spit on your face. But at the same time, you, you need to kind of um, – well, I try to – Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I remind myself that the majority of my engagements um, with strangers online are actually kind of great and we take that on board but it's the it's the nasty stuff that stays so it's about volume as well for me I'm really trying to just train myself in in reminding myself that if most people who have engaged with me are good that must mean that most people are good as well um, Look, one of my one of my happy happy TV watches is Gogglebox, right? And for those, I think it's the greatest show on television. It's one of, like it's so fantastic. If you told me that a show where you watch people watching television was at all interesting, I would say you were crazy. But what 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 that show gives me hope about is you've got such different slices of Australia, such different demographics, and you know across the board they would be voting very differently as well. But if you sit people down and you give them the information and when they watch something like an Australian story about an asylum seeker, everyone comes on board and says, that's really screwed up. What this country has done to that woman is awful. And I don't think it's about most people having a hardened, awful heart. I think it's that a lot of us don't have the information at hand to equip us to have the conversation. What's dangerous is that a lot of the media encourages us to start having a conversation that we don't have much knowledge about. You know, Talkback Radio is exactly that. What's your opinion on something that you've heard five minutes about? Well, I've got a very strong opinion about that, Alan. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, Safe Schools was a really good example of that. Like, I came out of of the park just saying, I I support this program that supports LGBTIQ kids. But then I realised that once I started doing research about it, even I, as a supporter was really misled about what about what the program was by the media, but I'd already built an opinion on it. And I think that's kind of dangerous as well. Because we, we're so fast nowadays, we are encouraged to be very certain about things and to be very, very um, bruised and defensive when someone takes us up on it. But I think, um, you know, it really takes strength to be able to step back and say, well, does this person have a point 
or should I feel ashamed by by what I why said? One of the one of the you know one of the hashtags that's been big in the last week or so has been the Me Too hashtag by by women. Essentially, like I just scrolled in horror and saw that basically every woman I know has experienced sexual abuse or assault and or and or harassment. Um, and what's what's kind of been sad about that is how little how how few men I saw really engage with that because it made us feel uncomfortable um because the logical extension of that is if all women have experienced that then all men have either been perpetrators or no perpetrators and then i had to kind of look back you know my initial my initial point when people were like kind of saying men you need to speak up was defensiveness and i'm like well i i don't want to intrude on a conversation that women should own that was my first thing and then i was just like well i didn't do anything bad myself this is all an internal conversation and then finally i'm like well actually if i do think through my behavior i've said stuff like to women oh he's just like that you know don't don't worry about him he's just like that or i've said to women i'm mates with him but i probably wouldn't be if i was a woman because he's a bit weird around them you know and i feel like that behavior is really messed up as well, you are dismissing harassment. You are essentially providing a soft racket for people to keep going on with their behavior, and I haven't taken them to task. So I kind of realized those women made me feel uncomfortable, and that's because they have a point. But it takes a while for your brain circuitry to be able to be flexible enough to get to that point. But I understand why people feel uncomfortable when they're taken to task because I do too. It take, and it takes a while. It takes longer than the 13 seconds you've got to reply to a tweet before your timeline exactly. refreshes and the next thing's there. And that, that, that jolt of anger that surges through you, that's, that's always the peak time. But you it feels wanna, so good. It feels so good. And it's just like, you're a fucker. I hate you. Righteous anger feels so good. Mm. And that's the I, th- I think that's the other thing that is is at play here is it feels good to be to be righteous. To be right. Absolutely. It feels, it feels good to to point a finger and go it would have been fine if you hadn't fucked it up. Yeah. How dare you do this to me? And it feels so awful to feel shame, mm. you know? Um I think there is this big movement where, um, you know, there's something central to Australian culture where you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And I think most of that comes from the right place. Like you shouldn't feel ashamed about how you look or, um, you know, about your upbringing or about your ethnicity. You shouldn't feel shame about those things. But sometimes I feel like it extends to a point where it's like you shouldn't feel shame ever. And it's like actually shame can be really instructive as well and shame when you think about it is the only way that you change because the feeling of shame is so horrible that you never ever want to feel that again so you're going to probably modify your behavior or your actions in order for that behavior never to make you feel like that again you know what i mean like embarrassment and shame maybe i'm chinese and those things are actually used in our culture quite strongly (laughs) it's just like parents always to their children you should be deeply ashamed it's like yes we are ashamed but um you know for 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 change sometimes we need to acknowledge that we are ashamed and then kind of take the next step, which is to ask why I feel like that and then to ask what I should be doing differently. But are we insulating ourselves by living in these bubbles of influence, Mm. whether it be our real-life bubbles in our workplaces and our friendship circles or Mm. our uh, online bubbles of endless 
Facebook feeds and mm. Twitter feeds that only ever support our point of view. Are we preventing ourselves from becoming better human beings and a, a, ascending to some sort of, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just Utopian some, plane. Slightly more pure version of, of, of what we're created to be. Are yeah. we essentially sticking ourselves with cycles of behaviour that we may have had when we were younger in our teens and mm. our 20s and never allowing ourselves to be exposed to these things being challenged. Mm. I've, got, I've got a couple of thoughts on this because I think it depends on the, the situation you're talking about. Like, for instance, after Trump won, all of us were having those conversations like why didn't, why didn't anyone see this coming? Mm. And I think even people who supported Trump were quite surprised that Trump won as well. Like, do we have just echo chambers where we aren't listening to each other? And I think that's legitimate, legitimately a problem, especially if you work in the media where you're so blind to a phenomenon that's right under your nose and you were caught so off guard that your New York Times barometer in terms of who was going to win is completely off They course. had Hillary in the 90s. They had, it was just – and to see that drop for anyone who supported progressive politics or Hillary Clinton was just, you know, cataclysmic. It felt awful. So I think that is a legitimate problem where you're so um, – where you're so myopic in terms of what the political conversation is in a country as broad and as big and as diverse as America that you didn't pick it up. So that's that. But in terms of, I think in terms of, you know, our friendship circles and stuff like that, there's a counter argument, which is to say, well, if you come from, say, a minority background, especially if, if you're part of the LGBTI community, if you're a non-white person, sometimes it it feels far safer to just be with your own people for a while. Um, like, for instance, I know that with the same-sex marriage postal survey at the moment going on, there are a lot of organisations arranging, you know, phone call meetings where you go and essentially call strangers and you encourage them to vote yes and if they don't feel convinced, you start having that conversation with them. And a lot of that's really productive but a lot of that I know for people within that community is also really exhausting and frightening too because to hear people say really vicious stuff about you and the people in your life is a brutal exercise and I don't think there's any shame in going back at the end of the day to your own tribe knowing that you're safe as well. And I guess the other thing... That I've had, that I've been thinking about lately, is that the No campaign would say, "Oh, you, you inner city progressives, you're in your own bubble. You don't know how No voters think." Blah 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 blah. And my immediate reaction to that, as someone who does work in the media, is, "Look, I think you're right, and I should talk to more No voters." Blah 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 blah. But then I realise, mate, I grew up in the suburbs of Queensland and coastal in coastal towns. I've spent half of my life knowing what those people are like. Like. To just say that one, one, one group of people live in their own bubble and to not acknowledge that maybe a Tasmanian senator who thinks same-sex marriage will lead to people marrying bridges, to, to think that an MP who says that same-sex marriage is like the relationship between cycling buddies, aren't these the people living in a bubble? I mean, that, that for me is the definition of living in a bubble where you're not just aware of not what the other side's thinking, you are not actually aware of how the world works. So, um, you know, it depends on, depends on the kind of conversation and context we're having. Yeah, I mean, when I think of... You know, Kiwana Waters, where, where, <laughs> yeah, yeah, where yeah. you grew up, 
doesn't get more mm. um, Bevan, doesn't get more suburban than that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty monocultural. Like the high point of culture was probably when Kamal came to the local shopping centre to sign copies of his book outside Bookworld. That was the height of my cultural experience yeah. growing up there. And when you look like I do and my family does, you, you really stand out. And when I go back to my hometown now, um, when I go to visit, it's only now that I've been living in cities like Brisbane and, and Sydney that I realise I grew up in a place that was quite atypical of a lot of the rest of Australia as well. So in a way, if people accuse me of living in a bubble, I'm like, well, actually, I've spent half of my life in a much smaller bubble, and I think I know what those people are yeah, like. Yeah, you, you absolutely do. I mean, the, when, once you start to get up to that part of Queensland, mm. um, just, you know, you had no choice of where you grew up, uh, neither did I, but particularly that part where it was there was nothing there mm. and then suddenly there was housing developments and it was yeah. it's just so homogenous it's just the same thing from Caloundra to just south of Noosa yes it's, it's it looks exactly the same for about 80 k's yeah there's nothing different and that offers comfort and security to a lot of people yeah. but but for me because I was really made aware of my difference. And you also keep in mind, like, my, my high school career was um, kind of defined by handsomeism. You know, she, she her career took off in the mid-'90s. That's when I started high school as well. I could not wait to leave because she had a, such a stronghold in, in the area that I grew up um, that I knew what that community was, and that's a lot of lovely, lovely people. Um, but it's also a community that wasn't necessarily accommodating of difference. Yeah. Malcolm Turnbull was on our radio show the other day and mm-hmm. he was very, you know, it, was, it sounded great coming out of his mouth. Um, Australia is the most successful multicultural, multicultural nation, nation in the world. In the world. <laughs> yes. That's his motto. If he was a cartoon character, that would, that would be good. And, he, and look, he is right to some extent. And I'm I'm grateful and gratified when he does say that because – the story that we tell ourselves and the story that we represent back to ourselves on the media is that we're still largely a white nation when that's not true. Like a third of us are non-Anglo-Celtic. Um, one in five of us speak languages other than English at home. A quarter of us were born overseas. Half of us have at least one parent born overseas. One in 30 of us are indigenous, part of the oldest living cultures on the planet, bar none. Um, you know, he's right, and it's actually refreshing to hear a prime minister really emphasise that a lot. But when, you, when you're heading a government that is really trying to make it hard for people to migrate to this country, when you're treating people who are fleeing persecution and locking them up in camps where they commit suicide or are murdered or are raped or are sexually abused, I think it's a little bit gauche to be promoting one image of yourself as one of the most accepting countries in the country when your government's responsible for some of the most heinous crimes to outsiders ever. For a lot of people, though, the, the last 30 seconds of what you just said <laughs> yeah. is terrifying. Yes. Because it requires thinking of another person's welfare. Yeah. All right? Mm. Um, and and I'm, I'm just back to the, you know, the same-sex marriage stuff, which is, I guess, in the last month or so has exposed me a lot to people that I would always never speak to mm-hmm. in, my, in my actual life and has, has made me realise more and more, my God, I live in such a freaking bubble. Mm-hmm. It's not even funny. Um, the, the idea that caring for a, someone I'm never going to know in my life, mm-hmm. a, a stranger, and asking for that this stranger have dignity and respected is respected and cared for um, is somehow seen as a weak thing to do or a snowflakey thing to mm. do. Yet if this were somebody on you, it would be and, – and that's that's the thing that really kind of 
Mm. Freaks me out. Like it's such a leap from, you know, I want only the people that I know to be looked after and cared for and protected. Mm. People I don't know can get fucked. But in, in, in some fundamental ways, we do that every day and we don't have a problem with it. Like, for instance, our tax money goes into the public health system that takes care of strangers that we'll never meet. And most of us want to protect that. Like, if there's any kind of um, threat to Medicare, if there's any threat to the public health system, we are up in arms about that. What is that system? That's essentially us as a society saying we should take care of each other. Now, I know the counter-argument to that, which is, well, we're taking care of each other because we're Australians. But if, if half of us have parents who come from somewhere else anyway, there is a potential for all of us to become Australians if you okay, if if on a very basic level you don't care about asylum seekers, you don't care about these women, men and children that you'll never meet. Okay, let's let's take that on board, right? Maybe you care about money and how taxpayer money is 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 used. And if that's what you care about, then the argument is also there that we spend over 1 billion dollars every year to detain people on Pacific islands when we could be processing them. In Australia, and that sounds like a lot of money, and people are like, well, what does a billion dollars even look like? Well, what it means is that those asylum seekers could be housed in luxury Gold Coast five-star accommodation for the same amount of time that they are detained on those islands. That, from a very economic angle, you don't care about humanity, you don't care about people, you just care about money. That should be something that scandalizes you. There is no way that you can justify what this country is doing with its money to these people. Yeah. You clearly think a lot, Benjamin. That's because I'm an angry person, so I need the data to back me up. Was it always this way? Did you always think a lot? Um, I, I was a high school debater, you might be able to tell, and that, that borders on annoying self-righteousness. I completely understand that. But from a really young age, I just remembered being furious at things that I thought were unfair. Um, and I know that makes me sound like a social justice warrior, which is the popular term on Twitter, but I don't think you need to be a warrior to just care about, you know, other people and to see when something's unfair and do something about it. And maybe, you know, you mentioned before that I'm a minority within a minority. Maybe it takes being an outsider for me to be quite cognizant of the fact that um, society isn't actually fair for everyone. And you might maintain that you don't see race, but that doesn't account for the fact that if you've got black skin in this country, you are more likely to be incarcerated and have a shorter life expectancy. Um, the 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 I'm I'm very much about making sure that and, and, you know, because I've got, a, I've got a features journalism background, that's one of the hats that I wear. I'm very sure to make, um, to make sure that, that your hunches, that your sentiments is actually backed up by facts. And if they're not, then they're not valid and we can't have a conversation in, in good faith. And that, that's a big thing about uh, that I've, I, I, I come back to a lot when, when people throw shit at me online, I guess. Yeah. It's like, look, that's great. Can you send me 
some maybe a journal, yeah. a scientific journal that shows me what you're saying? Or yeah. can you send me some articles? Show me your receipts. Not from Newsmax, please. <laughs> and not from – someone said the other day, you should watch YouTube and read the comments. The project doesn't mm. report properly. I'm like, I'm going to read some fucking tinfoil hat shit about <laughs> fucking what you think Waleed Ali's agenda is for fuck's sake. Completely. So, you know, you know someone with, with an iPhone doing a selfie at a bad angle where you can see their nostrils claiming that kids are taught about, I don't know, anal in their school year. Yeah. Apparently that's true just because they set it to their phone and it's like in that case yeah where are their receipts where is where is the show me the receipts show me your peer-reviewed scientific studies <laughs> oh who was here the other day sam Destiari was here the oh, other yeah. day and he said you're entitled to your own opinions mm. but you're not entitled to your own facts mm. and i really love that yeah and, I, and that that doesn't that that then then you know and i can be guilty of that myself and yep. i've learned to say and, and it is something we mentioned it earlier but it's something i have to say more and more it's like you know what i just don't know mm. i just don't know it's one of the things i love about dr carl i yeah. love it when he says my favorite three words he says like i don't know tell me that's always a sign of a good scientist it's always a sign of a good commentator it's a sign of a good journalist these people accommodate for doubt you don't have to be the expert on everything and you don't actually have to have an opinion about everything. It's completely not just fine but preferable if you mm. get your information first. You know, Lee Sales, mm. um, years and years ago, she wrote a book that's just been re-released called On Doubt and it was all about how, you know, especially in news journalism, doubt is this completely diminishing commodity to the point where doubt is actually seen as weakness in the news media. And that should concern us because if journalists aren't expressing doubt, if they're not asking questions of the story from every angle, if they're not asking questions of themselves about the weaknesses in their story, you fail to have good journalism. And I feel that kind of um, diminishing currency or you know, seeing doubt as something that we should back away from is is really worrying. Do you think it's a like there's the case has been made for trying to increase scientific literacy in the general public as mm. a way to be more informed about things like energy policy, for example, or climate change or science when it comes to vaccines or things like that. Would you think the same could be said for uh, journalistic um, literacy and like yeah. here's how like yes it's on a website it's in bold font they've got a fancy video Oop, look there's even a gif yeah does that mean it's real I feel you leave high school in this country so unequipped for a lot of the world with which we engage like for instance this is a country where voting is mandatory. And I actually think that's kind of a cool thing, that everyone is forced to get involved in democracy. But by the time you leave high school, every state in Australia of surveyed school leavers shows that only New South Wales passed in terms of its school leavers actually understanding how Australian democracy works. And that's not a judgment on young people, by the way, because by the time I left school... I definitely didn't really no, no, understand. Not until my like, 20s. What is the Senate? What, what, how does federal politics differ from state politics and what are their different responsibilities? I think a lot of Australians even struggle to understand that. I don't think it was even until I had a, like a tour of Parliament House in my late 20s that I really understood the relationship of how you know, the House of Reps and the Senate kind of has to work together or, or not. Um, 
And because of that lack of understanding of civics, that kind of bleeds into into our democracy mm. as well. Um, I think you're totally right. We we don't have media literacy either. And I only got that at the age of 17 when I left school because I did a subject called Media and Society. I'm, I'm like a very privileged, snooty, wanky art student who got to do that subject. Not all of us get to understand about media ownership, the difference between, you know, this paper and that paper, how newspapers and how TV stations work, how that information gets disseminated. Mm. Um, those, those critical faculties that I, that I take for granted, I acknowledge that not everyone has, but it makes me wonder whether we should. Just to talk about the, the, the work that you do, the, yeah. the writing generally, not only the incredibly successful screenwriting. Done, oh, thanks. Thanks, Sasha. The, the, well, one of us at this table has got to produce television drama <laughs> and it's not me. Um, not only the, the screenwriting but also the, the book writing that you do um, and also, you know, the journalism that you do. What is your, you know, can you tell when you're off your game when it comes to your writing? What do you mm. do to get you back in the groove? Uh, I can tell I'm off the game because it happens at least every day I'm at my desk. I think all writing is kind of torturous and any writer who says they love being at the desk is lying. And why writing is torturous is that you're getting stuff wrong literally with every sentence until you get it right. It's a constant going, oh, that shit, oh, that shit, how do I make it better? Oh, that's almost there, okay, on to the next sentence. It's kind of it's kind of you're, you're doubting yourself every single time you, you, you hit the typewriter. Um and then there are some days, actually most days, where you also hit a wall where you're like, this isn't working whatsoever and I am ready to glass myself, <laughs> you know? Like it's people call it writer's block, um, you know, I call it like brain constipation. You, you, you've just looked at it for too long. Um, and for me, and I know this sounds like very kind of, I don't know, Michelle Bridges or something, but for me... It wasn't until I discovered moving my body in my 20s that I realized that actually has a relationship with, with my writing. How so? So writing requires you to be very, very still at the desk or wherever you're writing. So nowadays, you know, some days I sit at the dining table, but most of the time I'm writing at a standing desk, mainly for my posture. And I'm not moving my body whatsoever, and I'm moving my brain really, really, really fast. And to step away from the computer and to do the complete opposite gives your brain a rest. So I grew up, even though I grew up on the Sunshine Coast, I was the most shithouse swimmer in the world, Osha. I, I, swimming carnivals were mandatory, as with most Queensland schools. Terrifying. Terrifying. As an overweight kid, it was the most horrible day of money. Oh, my God. To, to strip off in front of everyone Worst as in the well. world. And it's like... I'm still getting fear. Just look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's crawling. He's thinking about it. Your body language has changed oh, very, yeah. very dramatically. But for me, scrawny, scrawny Asian kid who can barely swim has to hold onto the lane ropes to even get past 50 meters, always disqualified and loses. Um, swimming has always been like a really, you know, hard thing for me to do. But then I got into it because I realized it was good for your body, good for your back, all that sort of stuff. And so I swim laps now. And what that affords me is my, for my brain to shut down because all it can think is, don't drown, don't drown, don't drown, don't drown, don't drown. And your body's moving really, really fast. But my brain, all it has to do is go, don't drown, don't drown, don't drown. And then I come out of the pool and I can return to, to the writing. So when it's not working, I keep telling myself, you need to get away from the desk yeah. and, um, and move. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, funny you say that because um, I've only uh, George's play. She plays water polo. Oh yeah, all right. And oh, about four months ago, three or four months ago, yeah, 
I asked her about water polo season. She goes, yeah, yeah, it's coming soon. I said, oh, would you like to maybe, you know, swim some laps, um, get some, yeah. strengthen up before that? She goes, yeah, that'd be great. And, of course, me, terribly self-conscious about my body, terrified of being naked in public, um, Oh great! I'll go with you. Yeah, because you know, it's terrifying. And so she and I have been going. Uh, we've been going and, and swimming laps. What's your regimen? Like how many? How often do you go? What um, like how many laps do you? do? We try to do at least once a week because I'm also like I'm you know because I've got old man stuff. I've got you know, like recovering from a dislocated shoulder oh, and sure. all kinds of other injuries. Shit. Um, so I uh, no, I just got in the slow lane mm-hmm. and I, I just you know I had to suck it up and realize that everyone else is out here mostly naked as well. Yep. And, you know, only the guys over there with the fancy triathlon watches the ones with the mad rigs. Yeah. So, you know, everybody else is a bit softer in the middle. <laughs> well, you know, in the, we go. You know, the other thing that I've kind of discovered, um, and maybe I think it's a particularly Sydney thing, but if you come from another state, you always think of Sydney being, oh, they're also body conscious. They're mm-hmm. all peacocks and they're walking around with their mad rigs. And the only people who are really, really engaged with them or kind of admiring them is usually themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, what I kind of have discovered and loved about this city is that everyone can wear speedos and no one will really blink twice, like no matter what your body shape is, because I don't, I think people are so much more aware of themselves that no one's really looking at each, each right. other. And that's been kind of liberating. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I just, you know, Gigi and I just go down and I just, you know, I, that's just, great. I jump on the slow lane. I've got, um, uh, I got a pull boy, which is the thing you put between oh, your knees, between, your, between le- your legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's B U O Y. Yes. Yeah, B yeah. B U O Y. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pull boy. So you put it between your legs. It makes you work your arms a bit more. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I just we swim for an hour. Are you enjoying it? Look, I love it. What's it giving you? Um. Look, it's not. As a kid, I swam squad mm. when I was a kid. So you're a strong swimmer. Well, I was. Yeah. Um. Even though I was fat, I, I was actually quite good, but. Uh, it required commitment and, you know, again, I was terrified of being naked on the pool deck. Uh, yeah. Well, in, anyway, it was awful, so I hated it. Um, it. I have a very busy brain, mm-hmm. very busy brain, so, you know, I just try as hard as I can just to think about, you know, what my hands are doing, what my mm. shoulders are doing, what my arms are doing, just think about the technique. I find it quite meditative. Yeah, so do I. Um, I have heard, you know, you know, obviously I'm not an Olympian, so I'm not doing mm. – eight hours or six hours in the pool every day. I'd imagine staring at the black line could be pretty boring, but I am, I do find the breathing to be quite meditative and, and, you know, being conscious of how many strokes per breath and trying to be as balanced as I possibly can. And and that's enough to occupy my brain and give me a break from the, the noise that happens in my head. Yeah. I've got a very busy brain as well. And I, in my mind, I've got this image of my brain kind of constantly covered in static electricity Mm. And when I dive into the pool, it just feels like that just dissolves all, right. all of a sudden, which is which is really nice. And also because a lot of my friends have said, well, if you've got a really busy brain, you should try meditation, which I've tried. And as soon as I do that, I'm either locked in my brain and I'm just like, now I'm with my own thoughts and this is worse, or I fall asleep immediately because I kind of stress sleep right. as well. I get really overwhelmed and then I just shut down. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so swimming for me is like that that kind of great in-between where, yeah, you do have to focus on breath like meditation asks yeah. you to do. You're also moving body, which I find nice. Um, and and I'm not – I'm still not the best – like I can swim – I can do a kilometer ocean swim now, so I can swim that far now, but I'm still also not the best, strongest swimmer, so I'm always going to struggle a bit, yeah. and that's helpful too. Yeah. 
When I well, I do did enjoy it when I lived at Bondi and I was much skinnier. I um because I don't like doing tumble turns. Yeah. So I would just start. Does at that South- dis- disorientate you? I don't like them. So I would start at South Bondi. <laughs> yeah. And I'll swim to North Bondi. Oh, you would do that whole thing. How turn long around is that? And swim back. Oh, that would be like a kilometer and a, and a half to go there and back. No, it's eighteen hundred meters. No, yeah, yeah eighteen hundred. Sixteen hundred yeah. meters. Yeah, sixteen hundred meters. Yeah. I've always looked at that and I've like envied that, but I'm also oh, like, I'll do what it with I, you what one day. You, so, so all you got to do is, are you okay in deep water? Yeah. Okay. All you got to do is get out past the breakers. You know, can you, can you swim through surf? Can you swim under yeah, waves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that ocean swimming course, but I haven't swum. I haven't attempted to swim more than one one k nonstop in the sea. No, you before. just have a break. Yeah, right. You just can float around, look at the surfers. Okay. Say hi to Kerbox. It's a date. Yeah. Say wave to the Bondi boys. They're always really nice. We're gonna have a podcast special where it's on our break, and it's just like, how are you going? <laughs> how are you going? What's, what's nice is you know you see stingrays and and you know fish versus band aids yeah. and toenails which is what you get at my pool yeah yeah yeah. yeah. that's one thing about public pools is like just you know any indoor pool let's be honest waterproof band-aids mm. you say you're waterproof no we all know you're not you're just gonna slide okay. off we all know you're not <laughs> so stop saying can be worn in a pool yeah can't it should be say it should say something like designed to be lodged in filters <laughs> yeah it's so designed, it's designed, so rank designed to sway backwards and forwards <laughs> alarmingly across the black line of the laps on, on it, lane number six it's not right is it there are some sydney pools <laughs> that are more soup like oh. the minestrone and instead of pasta spirals you do have band-aids oh. and baby snot when instead I, when i did my scuba diving course uh we did it at the the pool uh prince alfred oh yeah 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 Someone's, is that is that the one near central it's an central outdoors station? one yep and we did it there and i remember like you're on your knees. We're in a little group of six of us doing the scuba diving course. So you're on your knees doing all these drills where you're practicing putting the regulator in and out of your mm. mouth and putting your goggles back on and off. And, um, or your mask, I should say. I remember while everyone else was doing it, I looked down to see what was there and I was like, whoop, shouldn't have done that. Because <laughs> 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 it's really clear and I'm down there for ages and I can breathe and I'm looking at it, it's just fucking band-aids <laughs> and toenails. And, yeah. Just human detritus. Uh, but you know, it's still... Pools are great and chlorine is an amazing chemical. It's funny that you say, um, you know, swimming carnivals, especially when you were a kid. Oh, was the worst. Worst nightmare. Ever. Because you've just hit upon what I didn't realize was my worst nightmare but is. I did a scuba, scuba diving course recently. Really? And I hated I really struggled with really? it. It was nightmarish for me because what I realized is I don't have a fear of water anymore but I do have a fear of drowning still. But I know that if I'm just swimming, I'm not going to drown because I know how rips work and all that sort of uh-huh. stuff. But but with this new kind of equipment going in and out of my mouth and part of the course is your instructor turns off your tank mm. all of a sudden and then you've got to use your regulators. That was the worst thing that has happened to me in a really long time. It's horrible. To be underwater, to not be able to breathe. And I got so stressed by the experience because I had this um, German instructor who was – he was quite German, yeah. Osher, and he was just like, why are you nervous? Why are you scared? And it's like, mainly because of you. <laughs> um, and so by the time I came out, and because, you know, scuba diving, you're putting all those weights on yeah. you, and I'm not a big guy, so so it feels like I'm like Virginia Woolf putting rocks into her pocket about to commit suicide or something. And then I came out, um, I was completely exhausted, was close to tears because I kind of felt like I'd been yelled at all day. Yeah. Went back home, had a shower, and my boyfriend's like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. Then looked down and realized my body from the stress had broken out into hives from my neck to my oh, balls. No. So um, I didn't realize I had a fear of scuba diving, but, <laughs> then, but then I discovered it. I Look, 
I love scuba diving. Yeah. I, I, we've just come back from a great That's trip. That's so admirable. To Fiji. It's amazing. To be able to do it because I found I find it quite scary. Well, I, I'm sorry that your instructor was shit. Yeah, maybe it was um, him. I'll blame him. Yeah, but there are much better instructors. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you in a pool or out in the ocean? Both. All uh, right. So you tried to do the open water. Yeah, and the sea, and this, and when we got into the sea, it was very low visibility, and you know you're holding hands and stuff it's like tough. that, and then you lose people, really and you're like, oh, I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> yeah, save it for when you're on holidays in Fiji. Okay, and there's manta rays and colourful fish, and the water's warm. Oh, I might just snorkel, and, Osha. And it's nice. Yeah, but scuba diving's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, you can be down at twenty, thirty meters, and you know, go exploring the rest of the planet that we live on. Seventy something percent of it. So water. much of the training is. This is how you'll die. This is how you can die. This is also how you can die. I'm like, I'm not sure I like that. Yeah, but it's worth it. <laughs> You're like, it's so worth almost it. Almost dying. It's totally yeah. worth it. Well, Georgia did it with us. It's, uh, it's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, should, I trust you. I well, trust f- you. first thing, we'll, we'll go for a swim in, in, in Bondi because I need to get back out there. Yeah. Once, once I'm done with this thing, which I'll tell you about once the thing's recording, not anymore, um, <laughs> we'll do it. Um, so my final... A question, and this oh, yeah. is a completely me just picking your brain. Um, mm. For for uh, I, I, I signed a book deal. Ah, oh, congratulations! What's, That's fantastic. What? Thank you. I'm excited. You should be. That's what a huge thing. The fuck do I do? How do I write eighty thousand words? Okay, so the first thing that you don't do is just put in your schedule all of a sudden write book. You know, because that will just freak you out. And Did. Be- I ended up making all the times and then I pulled the light on my calendar and I haven't done anything. Because I remember when one of my friends got a book deal and I think she initially did it as a joke was to just write in her in her electronic calendar, write book for the rest of the year until the deadline or whatever. But that really freaks you out because you're constantly thinking of it as a book. I think the first thing that you do is you look at how much time you've got and you break it down into very, very small goals so that you're not writing a book. Today, you're going to write part of a chapter and what have you got to write about and you're going to get to, say, 750 words. Like You really map out the maths of it and you give yourself breathing time and that's it. You're never, you're never writing a book, Osha. You're just writing chapters. You're just writing parts of chapters and you're going to look at, like, what do I want to write about? You can break down the daily task. If I'm writing 750 words, that's a part of a chapter today. Bullet point, all the shit that's going to go into it. And I, and I do this. I, at the start of every kind of writing, writing project I have, whether I'm doing, you know, just a smaller piece or a bigger piece, I just do a total brain vomit. So the, you don't need to write perfect sentences. Bullet points, um, half-formed paragraphs, one of my writing lecturers once said, you know, all writing is simply vomiting, then cleaning it up later. You know, right. just do a big brain dump because that's just getting the words out. Um, and then you're just going to spend the rest of the day cleaning up, which actually feels quite liberating because all the words are already there. So you don't have the pressure to get it to this perfect word count because all of it's there somewhere. And now you're realizing that you're just stitching it together. That's it. And then soon you'll start realizing, oh, though I now have a book chapter. Well, I've got a couple of book chapters. Stitch them together. You got a book. And there it is. There it is. Look, I make it sound easy because probably I've for- forgotten all of my nervous breakdowns associated with mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, the other, the other thing is if you're um, stuck with structure, because that can be a difficult thing for a book, is um, use post-it notes. I'll show, you, I'll show you a photo on my phone later on about how I structured my last book. Um, my friend Antonia Hayes, who's a great novelist, she, I once saw this photo of her planning her book and it was like this 
brilliant, meticulous rainbow. It was like a pride flag made out of out of sticky notes. I was like, what the what the fuck is going on there? And she said, that's the structure of the book. These are how many words I want in this section. And vertically, I've got all of the characters. The characters are one color. Then I've got like the themes that I want to do. That's another color. And then I've got actually what happens blow by blow in each chapter. And then I look up and if I'm ever lost, I know what I'm doing in that moment. Like you're giving yourself a map. So you might, before you even start writing a sentence, do that. Structure the whole thing so you've got like a GPS in terms of where you want to go. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. That's made me a lot less frightened. You should not be frightened. You should be frightened like later on, but not now. <laughs> no, the more frightening things is like when they start sending you um, book jackets and you're like, oh, that's bad. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. And then you're like, look, oh. I've been very amenable in the editing process, but I'm going to die on this hill and that cover's not going to go to print. <laughs> well, I, did, uh, I, I did a talk at the publishing house the other day and as I went for, I tried to get out of there quick sticks as i went for the lift editor came over how's the writing going yeah good good, yeah, good, good, good. Yes, oh, good. oh my god that editor that's abuse that editor should know <laughs> you do not ask that question i feel like and also if if you have friends who are writing books like that question makes people feel really nervous one of the, i think a softer version of that question is how is it feeling at the moment because that doesn't mean that there's a goal or a deadline it's a part of your life now it's an ongoing job and you should also think of a book that way like you've just signed up for a job yeah and that job will last you for like half a year to a year or however long they've given you or whatever and that's what you're going to do for a while you know you you paid you paid whatever in your advance and Every day you're going to write X amount of words and once you break it down to daily goals, you'll realise, oh, that isn't that much to write actually. Like that's doable. You get paid in advance? Yeah. I should really really look at my contract. That's Um, right. Thank you so much, Benjamin. I'm going to take your photo and then we're we're going to go swim in a pool and look at some toenails. I'm I'm going to take your photo. Thanks, man. Right now. Hi, this is me in my kitchen. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, do a bit of a do a bit of a presentation. Uh, what should I? What, uh, no, that's I'll good. An incredibly ripe avocado. Oh, that's good. That's my one second a day video. Have you seen this app where you take a one second video every day, you stitch them together, and you've got a six minute video of your entire year? What? Yeah. So was I your one second today? You were my one second today. Oh. I mean, my boyfriend's mom is coming to town tonight, but she'll be here for a while. <laughs> I'll, I'll remember her later. But like, yeah, so you just stitch all of them and it just becomes like one, one movie. I love it. Yeah. Cool, man. All right, I'll get this done. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. That is Mr. Benjamin Law on Twitter. You can find him, Mr. Benjamin L-A-W, Mr. Benjamin Law. If you did like that conversation, do let him know. Thank you very much to my audio producer, Andy Ma, who worked very hard on this show today, and my production coordinator, Haley Van Spanier, who turned the world backwards to make sure that Benjamin and I could spend an hour and a bit together in the same place at the same time. Haley, you're a superstar. So I guess I'll leave you this week with... Um, I guess, you know, the, the lesson that I learned from what I was talking about earlier about my my dodgy hips uh, is just to try and remember that, you know, when I feel like shit and I feel like all selfish, no, poor me, just remember some things that I'm grateful for. Just list five things that I'm grateful for. I'm grateful there's clean water that comes out of my tap. I'm grateful there's a roof over my head. I'm grateful i got shoes on my feet, food in my fridge, people that love me, a job. I live in a peaceful country. That's more than five. But that's a good way to start. Anyway, 
Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you through the week. And until the next time we speak, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 